not going to bother with a cold opening this episode. Welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody. This is a very special episode of an entirely listener-supported show. So thank you so much for any money that you might be giving us on Patreon. It goes a long way to supporting the show. Get in the Discord if you're not already. And if you are a patron that doesn't have stickers yet, just message us on Patreon. Leave a five-star review. Yada, yada, yada. We are really excited to have not just the three hosts here today, but also a very special guest, Do Not Eat, a.k.a. Justin from Well, There's Your Problem Podcast podcast a podcast with slides how you doing justin i'm doing pretty good i'm excited for this uh covering this fast moving development i'm sure it'll be completely out of date by the time this episode comes out but there's no there's nothing we like better on this show (laughs) than giving away extremely time sensitive information that may no longer be relevant by the time it hits release (laughs) yeah Yeah, absolutely so i mean just for a real quick intro for folks before we get into the discussion Uh, Our listeners uh, will be aware that, you know, we've been covering over the last couple of months the really awful labor situation faced by workers in the railroad industry and the potential for that to lead to a national rail strike. And, uh, you know, now as we're recording this in the second week of September, we're extremely close to that potential deadline. And so, you know, a, a national railway strike or actually lockout, and we'll get into this as we, you know, get into the episode could actually happen as early as this week. And so on our show, we focused mostly on the awful working conditions faced by the workers and just generally the situation with labor and how that's pushed us towards this strike. And so just as a very brief summary, like basically the big problem facing these workers is they get no time off whatsoever and they are forced by the Railway Labor Act to go through this incredibly onerous process of jumping through all of these legal hoops that take forever before they get the opportunity to use what the, the, the Railway Labor Act terms, quote, self-help or the ability to strike. And unfortunately, that whole process really doesn't give the railroads much incentive to actually make to meet any of the workers' demands. So that's the general stage as far as the labor situation goes. But what we haven't really talked about is the long history of how we actually got to this point, about how the railroads have changed over time and how that's led us to this potential national rail crisis that is sort of looming as as we record this. So we're very honored and happy to have Justin from Well, There's Your Problem on here to help enlighten us on all that history that we are, you know, not really so much up on. So thank you again for for joining us, Justin. Oh, thank, thanks for having me on. I'm, 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 I'm excited to talk about trains forever and bore everyone to death. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty uh, short intro for what I'm guessing is going to be a slightly longer episode. I'm So I think that the first thing that we wanted to do is actually like kind of move into the theme of some of our more like Patreon style content, though this is a public episode where we actually go into the deeper history of what is going on in the situation and kind of what are the different aspects of the train industry that really influence what's going on today and the looming uh, lockout slash strike. And so uh, I guess, Justin, uh, did you want to kind of take the lead on that and let us know Uh, what the hell is going on? Okay. Yeah, I, I can do that. I think, uh, okay, let's start with the Socratic method. What is the railroad? <laughs> right? That's right. And 
I, one of the things that especially distinguishes the freight railroads, especially the modern ones, is they're sort of, it's a very, very, it's an opaque industry, right? It's mm -hmm. very hard to figure out what's going on if you're on the outside or even if you're on the inside. Um, you know, you're told constantly America has the greatest freight railroads in the world. Uh, and that's because you can point to a chart that says ton miles went up and, uh, and that means we're the best, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, but, but because everything is sort of, it, they're all private companies. They don't share a lot of information. They don't want you to know stuff. Um, you know, if you're an enthusiast, if you're an academic, if you work for the railroad, if you are management at the railroad, you're all blind men feeling different parts of the elephant. And, sure. uh, you know, you just, you're describing the problems totally differently. But, you know, there's all one elephant there, right? Um, an example, I guess, of how bad this is, is um, right now there's a dispute before the Surface Transportation Board between Amtrak and CSX about um, the uh, being able to run a passenger train between Mobile and New Orleans, right? And in front of the uh, Surface Transportation Board, and in front of God and everyone, when Amtrak asked, well, well, how many trains do you run on this line? A CSX was like, oh, that's a trade secret. Uh, oh, wow. I, said, I said that straight to the regulators, too. It's a national security issue if the regulators know <laughs> how many trains are on this line. Anyway, what, what wound up happening a couple months later is Amtrak just set up a webcam uh, on that rail line. And they found out the number of trains they were running per day was four. Um, <laughs> obviously, you cannot schedule an Amtrak train around that. It's national security. <laughs> of course. No way. Yeah. <laughs> So, so this is uh, this is the sort of uh, industry you're dealing with. They 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 hate everyone, um, and that is that is uh, there's a long history of that. So I, I feel like historical analysis is very useful, looking at how we got where we are with the railroad today. Um, most most of what's important is stuff that happened after about 1960. I figure for completeness, no. Let's uh, let's start a little earlier. Um, Hell yeah. So, yeah. So the, the Liverpool and Manchester Railway opened September 15th, 1830. It was the first recognizably modern railroad. And on day one, it killed a member of parliament. Uh, <laughs> wow. So this Railroads is killing auspicious. people since day one. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think that's a strong start, actually, because he was kind of a Tory guy. Um, <laughs> um, in America... We start building railroads pretty early. Uh, before the Civil War, it's pretty slow going, you know, just trying to get a railroad over the mountains to, you know, the Great Lakes or the Ohio River. Um, right after the Civil War, we start, you see the really big explosion in railroad growth, right? You know, you build a transcontinental railroad to get those, get those sweet, sweet land grants, you know, which you can then sell out from underneath the Native Americans who live there, right? right? Um, this is all done with terrible working conditions, expendable immigrant labor, right? So, so on and so forth. They were built very, very rapidly, very, very poorly. And they found out when they built the first one, uh, no one actually wanted to ship anything from San Francisco to uh, Chicago. Um, <laughs> but they got those land grants, so they were making right. money anyway. Um, and, and you're in a, a sort of... Um, I like to call this period sort of the alphabet soup era because there's so many different railroads. Some of them are affiliated with each other. Some of them aren't. That even, you know, a big nerd like me, I can't keep track of any of them. Um, right. You know, um, 
but we start a real boom and bust cycle here uh, from the late 1860s to the early 1870s leads to the panic of 1873 and the long depression. Uh, a lot of these railroads uh, that are built or are partially built, you know, uh, they're either undercapitalized or they're just scams, right? Um, sure. You know, you get a bunch of investor money with your uh, nowhere in East armpit railroad, right? <laughs> and then, yeah. then you run out of money, you go broke. And you go bankrupt, and you reorganize. Now it's the nowhere in East Armpit Railway, um, <laughs> and you get you get more investor money, and you repeat the cycle and tweak the name slightly each time, right? So that that's uh, kind of the business model yeah. that modern tech companies have picked up on. <laughs> yes, yes. These are, it, there's a very much a startup mentality in this right. era, okay. except uh, except uh, everyone's much more uh, stodgy, I would say. Mm. Uh, a lot so, more like. Top hats and giant cigars. <laughs> Top hats, giant cigars. Um, Monocles. More guys with guns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And weirdly, also more CrossFit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I know, like, for me, the first place, like, you know, going through, like, labor histories where the railroads really start to become huge in, in U.S. labor is, like, the great railway strike of 1877. Mm. Yes. Um, and that's where, you know, you, you, you have one of the largest strikes ever to happen in America. Um, you know, it sort of starts on the Pennsylvania Railroad and spreads east. Um, the, uh, the strike leads to riots in Pittsburgh. They burn down the entire Pennsylvania Railroad terminal area <laughs> and a, a significant part of the city as well. Um, and this is where infamously they had to bring in the Philadelphia National Guard to essentially declare war on Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Um you know, this, this sheets Wawa divide has deeper <laughs> roots. Uh, <laughs> and for the record, uh, sheets stands for the workers, I guess. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, so uh, over the next like 20 years, um, I would say that the railroad industry gets much more stable, especially after it's mm. regulated uh, by the Interstate Commerce Commission. But that's also... It's the first regulatory body and is almost immediately a victim of regulatory capture. Like, I, it, what a it, surprise! It, wow, what a in surprise! America? Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, I mean, as, as, as soon as this uh, rail industry started actually taking off, like it immediately became one of the most profitable industries in the country, right? Yes, it was. Uh, it, it was very profitable to both run a railroad or not run a railroad. <laughs> right, Let's say you right, were right, right? and. Yeah. There was this myth of competition in railroads, right, uh, which is persistent to this day. Railroads have never really competed with each other, especially not after the ICC was uh, created, the Interstate Commerce Commission. Um, they, they have been, you know, when you did have com com competition, it was destructive competition, right, where mm -hmm. one railroad would lower rates, the next one would lower rates, the first one would lower rates more. All of a sudden, no one can afford to run trains anymore. Um, and then everyone had to meet on like uh, uh, J.P. Morgan's yacht and then agree to uh, raise the rates. Um, that was, uh, was a famous uh, incident between uh, the New York Central and the Pennsylvania Railroad where they were each building competing lines with each other. And J.P. Morgan was like, all right, get on the yacht. We're not coming back to shore until you fix this. Uh, the, the wonders <laughs> of the free market. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to price fix until you boys have some bourgeois solidarity, I swear to God. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so uh, we get to World War I. Uh, 
because the railroads have such bad terminal facilities in New York, they can't get enough supplies out to Europe. And mm -hmm. the railroads were nationalized for like three years uh, under the U.S. Railroad Administration. And uh, some people say this is probably when the railroads were best run in all of American history because um, it was Not one surprised. big railroad, you know, and one big railroad is a lot better than. 40 or 50 small railroads who are all are like fiefdoms, right? Right, um, right. You know, I, 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 it's, it's kind of like useful to think of these railroads not so much as companies, but as, you know, warring feudal states. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they certainly had enough dynamite. This is true. This is true. And, and there was, uh, there were a few incidents where railroads would violently sabotage other railroads while they were being constructed, mostly out west. Yeah. Um, so, you know, between the wars, we got some major upgrades to a few rights away. You know, it's, uh, we start seeing railroad electrification. Uh, regu the regulators start to get more aggressive. There was an idea for the Interstate Commerce Commission to consolidate all the railroads at this point into more efficient systems. But again, these are warring feudal states, so no one could agree to that. You know, and, and after, after World War II is really when we start to see a divergence between America and Europe in how railroads were run, right? Which is in Europe, they, everything's nationalized. Uh, the railroads are electrified. Uh, everything runs on tight schedules. Um, everything is, you know, it, it, it's a very tight and efficiently run uh, system. And in America, we don't electrify. We rely on diesel locomotives because of the curse of cheap oil. Right. Um, and, and stuff starts to, you know, fall apart fairly early. Um, you know, because there's uh, the question of, do you invest in infrastructure or do you not do that? And when you're, <laughs> when you're a private company, it's much easier to not do that. Right. I was just thinking, uh, yeah, yeah as in a, as someone who lives in the United States, I know the answer to that question. It's, uh, it's pretty clear. <laughs> Why would you ever invest in infrastructure? Well, well yes. yeah, I mean, we're talking about, uh, mostly like freight here, but like, have you ever tried to book a passenger train anywhere in the United States? Unless you're on one of a handful of very popular routes, like it's expensive. And it's also like the trains don't run very often. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, and that, that is, uh, the next subject here. So, in the 1960s is when stuff starts to fall apart, especially in the Northeast, right? You had um, mm. the New York Central, the Pennsylvania Railroad, New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. They were all sort of falling apart. They merge into something called Penn Central, and this is the world's most massive railroad, and it crashes and burns immediately. Um, <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> yes. Um, lots, we, we recorded, of course, a three-parter on that at uh, Well, There's Your Problem. Um, uh, 1967... The U.S. Postal Service was, uh, they shipped a lot of the mail on trains and they canceled all those mail contracts. Uh, they were like, nope, we're using trucks now. This meant every single passenger train in America was now running at a loss. Um, wow. Yes. Oh, so you so, mean like up until that point, the mail contracts had been factored in to the point where they were the primary source of income and ferrying passengers was just kind of a bonus. That's a, that's a secondary one. Yeah, you would see, mm -hmm. you know, trains that had four or five mail cars on the front and then there was like one passenger car. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like. I mean, not to interrupt your 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 history, but I feel like a lot of this, especially like when you bring up the comparison with post-war Europe during like the social democratic era there, I think at least from the public's perspective, if not from the railway executive perspective, 
I feel like a lot of this has to do with like the different perception of like a railway as a utility versus yes. a railway as like any other company, which is more like how they're treated in the U.S. Even though, I mean, anytime you look at it, you're like, wait, why aren't aren't why aren't they a utility again? <laughs> yeah, why, why is this not considered a public good? Um, right. And this is this is uh, where. Uh, the railroads start to lobby uh, Congress to say, uh, maybe these passenger trains are a public good, which means we shouldn't have to deal with them, right? <laughs> <laughs> mm, what's the least profitable part of our business? You yeah. take that part. Mm -hmm. But a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of people who had influence in Congress, they wanted their passenger trains. And we have this idea for M-Track, right? Um, which is essentially M-Track would take over all the passenger trains in America, leaving the freight companies free to do whatever they want, right? Um, and M-Track, the system is like, it is, of course, drawn up by none other than McKinsey and company, right? Oh, um, the whole system. And they, they present the system to Richard Nixon, and the Nixon administration is like, I cut that by two-thirds. That's too much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> two-thirds? Something Less like two than, than, than what McKinsey was recommending. It was it's the McKinsey plan was much better than what we have today. Yeah, um, I mean you know, <laughs> the city's the as big. Shit I ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, consider that cities as big as Columbus, Ohio, were left off the network. It's just crazy. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so that that system that was um, created then is very similar to what we have now. And then, of course, Penn Central imploded, and they had to quasi-nationalize it. And, of course, again, we're leaving social democracy to the Nixon administration. Uh, <laughs> so, so Conrail is created. That's also sort of a McKinsey and Company story. But, what, like, their second CEO actually kicked all the McKinsey uh, um, consultants down into the basement uh, and then fired them all a month later. So, you know, that's uh, – uh, they, they got the last laugh there. Um, but the uh, – <laughs> What happens after that is the Staggers Rail Act, and that really deregulates the industry. And what this mm -hmm. allows the railroads to do is they um, all of a sudden we have more opportunity to, let's say, prune our network, right? Maybe I have a branch line, it goes to like some town's lumber yard, and maybe it has like another customer on there, like a chemical plant that gets a tank card twice a week. Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, this is making money, but it's not making that much money. Maybe we can just rip this up, use the rail somewhere else, and tell those customers to get fucked, use a truck. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Um, I mean, so <laughs> honestly, that sounds a little bit like what's happened to like the hospital system in the US mm. because we have yeah. so many of these like rural hospitals that are so important for so many people but because healthcare companies are just there's like well this isn't run by the state you guys can do whatever you want they just get to the point where like yeah I know you guys need a hospital but but um, this isn't this isn't making us enough money so we're just going to close it well that, that's have always you, what I that's always why I've had objections uh even before I was more like politically educated to the concept of like let's take these public services and run them like a business cuz businesses are so smart and it's like well what do businesses do my friend they close pretty often <laughs> yes yes um we have another another phenomenon in this time is demarketing uh mm -hmm. railroads uh shed entire categories of traffic. So like livestock, for instance, uh, that was always very expensive to handle. They're like, nah, not moving those cows. Not going to do it. No way, no how. There was an incident where a Conrail station master or form, yard foreman, I guess, he was out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he heard that 
someone in the traffic department was trying to get a contract for livestock delivery from Lancaster to, I think it was like a, a butcher in New Jersey, right? And when he heard about it, he had the livestock pens bulldozed before the uh, before the um, the contract could go through. It's like, oh, wow. we don't we don't actually have that infrastructure. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Um, and there's a complete reluctance to invest in infrastructure of any kind. Uh, as an example, they discovered coal in the Powder River Basin in uh, Wyoming, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Burlington Northern Railroad wanted to build about a 100-mile line out there to go get all that coal, right? And there was a massive shareholder revolt. Like, you can't build anything. Don't do that. <laughs> anyway. You got to make they, the government pay for that. And they managed to make it, they managed to build it, and it was the most profitable single rail line ever built, but <laughs> wow. have you considered, what if we hadn't done it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Powerful argument. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And this is also where we start to see workforce attrition just because we're running fewer trains on less track, right? And people are getting furloughed or laid off. So you start to have a contraction in the workforce, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And unions, unions love that. They love it when the, you know, their membership are, you know, thrown out of their jobs. It's, it's something that, you know, historically, you know, yeah. whenever we cover things like this, uh, you know, it's always uh, some who when the workers lose, I think that the people tend to get a little angry. This is true. This is true. I mean, um, and, and this is uh, also the era of what's called the mega mergers, um, mm -hmm. where these these railroads really start to consolidate into you know, from, from 20 or 30 railroads into, like, four, right? Um, right. Yeah. Same thing that the phone companies did in the 70s and 80s and that the internet companies all did over the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, it's weird how capital consistently trends towards consolidation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who could have predicted this? <laughs> Somebody should write yeah. a book. <laughs> uh, and over the course of this, the railroads start making a whole big bunch of money. Um, you know, you have, you have, uh, the lowest, uh, some of the lowest operating ratios ever. The operating ratio is like how many cents on the dollar goes to running the railroad versus income. So if I have an operating ratio of 60%, that means 60 cents of every dollar that the railroad brings in goes back to operating the railroad and the other 40% is executive pay, dividends, blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, you know, tr historically that was around 80%, but now you could get something much lower because we had all these different operating practices. And mm. up till this point, I would say there was still a way out of what was going to happen. Um, mm. but, uh, around 1990 in the late, well, the late 80s, really, we, we get this guy, E. Hunter Harrison, right? Um, he invents something called precision scheduled railroading. Oh, precision. Oh, okay. That's usually yeah. a good thing, right? Well, I would I would call him I would call him the Lenin of precision scheduled railroading <laughs> okay. because he he also died before the project could be carried out and uh. then it went to shit afterwards. Um <laughs> so, so so he's out here saying what is to be done and that is apparently uh better scheduling but for smaller crews. Uh it's 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 Primarily, uh, it was better. Yeah, I mean, primarily, it was supposed to be better scheduling, but uh, that didn't. That that's not how it went when it was adopted in other railroads at the Illinois Central and I believe the Canadian Pacific. It was it was done right. It made the railroads a lot of money. Um, but how this gets, how this how this changes over time is important. Um, 
So there was a big railroad strike in 1992. That's where we got the modern uh, Railway Labor Act, which is basically the, the act that makes it impossible to strike. Um, George H.W. Bush's Congress uh, ends that strike in two days because, uh, you know, everyone. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, we can go. We can hit that real quick if you wanted yeah. to say more. Well, yeah. I mean, just just for some background, like for folks who have listened to our previous episodes, like this is. This is where we're starting to get into the background that we, the little small amount of background we've yeah. had been able to to go into about, mm -hmm. because it's one of the things you know for us covering this has been a learning experience because you know most of the strikes that we cover are under the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, uh, whereas learning about this issue with the railroads has been like, oh, they're not covered under that; they're covered under this other act, the Railway yes. Labor Act. Let's let's look into this, and then reading through it, oh, I, I have to fold out this flow chart. Yes. That, shows all of the steps and it's this giant zigzag of like cooling off periods and, and federally enforced mediation. And it, it, to the point where like from the time you begin these negotiations, it's literally like years to get to the point that we're at now with the potential for even just the possibility of a strike. Well, and I mean like the rail, the railways have been working without a contract since 2020, right? Yes. Yeah. And every time I look at something that's like a railway or, or also an agricultural like workers issue, it does feel like, okay, we're not playing checkers anymore. We're playing mist. And I have basically no idea what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> every, I mean, because the railroads were such a big fixture in like early American corporate law, uh, mm -hmm. everything is regulated differently for the railroads versus every other mm -hmm. business, you know, and then you have stuff like railroad retirement, you know, where railroad workers have an entirely separate social security system. Uh, right. You know, it's, it's all, everything's weird. Uh, and for the longest time, uh, railroad finances were regulated by the interstate commerce commission instead of, uh, what is it? Securities and exchange. So right. sure. they, they could do all kinds of creative accounting. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, because the ICC is a much smaller uh, regulatory body that doesn't receive the same level of public scrutiny at all as the SEC, right? Yeah, and 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 getting into that that strike in 1992, like as you were you were referencing, like that gets into one of the other big problems with the Railway Labor Act, which is that like when you finally get through that whole rigmarole of a process and you get to the point where again it allows you to do quote unquote self help. It still has that backdoor option for Congress to just come in and be like, uh, yeah, so we know you went through the whole process, but it really would be a pain if you went on strike. So uh, we're be, uh, just going to say you can't. Yeah, you, you can't. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How? how, how I'm going to have to ask you to come in on Saturday. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not to jump way too far ahead, but I mean, Capitol, as of the past week, has been basically demanding that the government mm -hmm. do that and, and shut down any possibility of a strike at all. But we, we will get to that a little bit later. Yeah. So uh, more recent history. In 1999, there's a really big traffic spike from the aforementioned uh, coal mines in the Powder River Basin. That's because of a unintended consequence of some EPA regulations that come in, basically make Appalachian coal non-viable because you need a expensive stack scrubber for that. The, uh, the Powder River Basin coal is objectively worse quality, but it's lower in sulfur. So mm -hmm. everyone switches over that and all of a sudden there's this 
massive spike in coal traffic. You know, they're exporting this all the way as far as the East Coast for uh, for power generation. Um, and that's followed by, of course, the back in crude oil boom. Um, and this means in 2004, the railroads go on this huge hiring spree, right? And uh, of course, all those guys are hitting about are about to hit 20 years. So that's one of the one of the one of the looming disasters coming is. You know, everyone, everyone taking railroad retirement and getting out. Um, right. <laughs> um, and we have stuff like technology that makes longer trains possible. I'll talk about that in a second. And precision scheduled railroading really goes mainstream. And that's mostly in like the last five years that happened. And this is where s- stuff gets really shitty really quickly. Yeah, I mean, um, like, over the past six years, they've cut, uh, like, almost a third of, of all of their labor, right. about 45,000 yeah. workers. Yeah, well, yes. and the, the, the precision, precision scheduling thing sounds, uh, the way you're describing it, a bit like a game of telephone, where each successive railroad that adopts it kind of understands it more and more poorly until yes. you get to the point where you're like, this is what you're calling precision scheduling? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> like, well... Yeah, so your theory behind precision scheduled railroading, right, is you have better asset utilization. That is to say you're Mm -hmm. using fewer locomotives, fewer crews to move more trains, but you do that through tight schedules, right? And you do that through... Uh, more direct routings, like if I'm shipping, uh, I don't know, a boxcar from Boston to Chicago, um, traditionally that would go from Boston to like Selkirk, uh, New York, and it'd be reclassified and it would go from uh, Selkirk to, I don't know, Fort Worth, uh, and then it would go from Fort Worth to Chicago. Uh, I don't know if that's the right routing, but as an example, uh, mm-hmm. now you'd run a train that goes direct from Boston to Chicago, um, you know, and... By reclassified, do you mean like put on a different class of rail line? You would put it on a different train. It would come into the yard. They'd they'd switch the cars around to different trains going to different locations. And that takes anywhere between one to three days. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, but that that is the traditional way to do it. Um, Now, in order to run all these trains on precision schedules, you, of course, need this really competent, well-staffed planning department who can, like, target bottlenecks on the railroad and do some infrastructure improvements so that everything runs smoothly, right? And you have fast... Basically, like, an air traffic control system, but for trains. Yes. um, That and... uh, Well, I already have uh, centralized traffic control. That's uh, old technology. Uh, Although there's plenty of parts of the railroad which are not equipped by that. You have, like, like, trains that run in dark territory, which is just... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, rail with no signals and they have to just give people orders on paper, say, hold here for the other train. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that, that is a very, very old system. And there's plenty of, plenty of railroads that still run like that. Um, so, but, but you'd, you'd want to do infrastructure improvements. That's, that's a mm-hmm. big part of precision scheduled railroading is you should be doing infrastructure <laughs> improvements, right? Um, at least in the theory. Um, you'd have faster trains. They'd run on time. Your crews would have better schedules because you'd be running the trains on a schedule, right? Because uh, prior to this, you had some trains run on schedules. Others are extras, right? And if you're a locomotive engineer, right, um, when you sign on to the railroad, you're first assigned to the extra board, and the extra board is like, you know, you're on call at any time to run any train that's an extra, 
right? That's not scheduled. And as you gain seniority, eventually you can bid on more consistent jobs. Your life gets better because you can plan around stuff, right? Right. Um, so the theory would be you would reduce the amount of extra trains, and that would, of course, uh, among other things, improve the quality of life for workers. Um, but mostly it's, you know, for, again, better asset utilization. Uh, right. But, you know, your shippers get your, their stuff more quickly. Everybody wins in this, and it makes a lot of money, right? Okay, that's the theory. <laughs> now, the, the reality is that as this was implemented in various railroads, uh, like you said, the game of telephone here, uh, eventually people say, well, okay, what if we only did the bad parts of this, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, if we, what if we didn't spend any money and just did the bad stuff? And technology sort of assists in this, right? Um, because what if instead of putting down track and reducing bottlenecks, what if we just ran, let's say, monster trains, right? <laughs> Um, and, and the monster train is a relatively, uh, recent phenomenon. There's this thing called distributed power now where you have a radio and a front locomotive, and then you can stick a locomotive in the middle of the train. And then one at the end, you can control them all from the front. Right. And this, uh, reduces the need for crews. Um, it means you can do much longer trains. You know, it used to be a long train with 75 cars. Now a long train is 250 cars. Um, (laughs) Well, and, and, I mean, it sounds nice in terms of economics to put one person in charge of three locomotives powering ho- however many hundreds of cars. But at the end of the day, now you've made one normal person responsible for, like, how many thousands of tons of metal and wood and everything that's on the train? Like that Lots. Di- <laughs> yeah, the, the safety issues seem like they would kind of grow exponentially at that point. Along yes. with the the fact that these workers are basically given what one day off a year, so yeah, yeah, if that, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so you have uh, this actually starts to increase uh, derailments, right? Because mm. all of a sudden train makeup becomes important, like how you assemble the train. Uh, if you put like, let's say you put heavy cars on the back of the train and light cars up front, and you're going like downgrade along a curve. Um, that's going to cause all those heavy cars to push on the front cars that are light right. and tip them over. Mm. Um, and that's, that's a string line derailment. Norfolk Southern has been doing a hell of a lot of them recently. Um, <laughs> all on these, all on these, you know, super long monster trains. They did it on, um, they've done it on horseshoe curve now twice, which is like this famous railroad landmark near Altoona, Pennsylvania. And it's mm-hmm. got like a view. There's a viewing platform to watch the trains go by there and everything. And, you know, they just, they just knocked the train over right in front of God and everyone. Um, and, <laughs> just and then imagining they, people standing there, like eating popcorn, like, Oh yeah. That motherfucker's going off. Yeah. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then they just, they left it there for two months. Uh, <laughs> two months. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's well, like two M- there's two Amtrak trains that go through there each day too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was living in Pittsburgh and a train derailed right there in Station Square. It sat there for probably pretty close to two months, and I would take the incline down right above the train wreckage every single day on my way to work. <laughs> <laughs> America. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, now, the, the, the thing about using monster trains is, of course, now you're holding the train in the yard for longer, waiting for more cars to show up. Mm. That means 
this whole scheduling thing, eh, maybe we can drop that because I got to wait for 250 cars to show up and I got to call someone up at, at any time at 1 a.m. in the morning uh, and, uh, and just uh, say, hey, you got to go drive this train. I hope you had some rest. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, because that's, that's definitely been one of the biggest complaints that I've seen from, you know, people working either like, you know, engineers or just other rail workers is this issue where, again, despite exactly despite the name and despite the theory of precision scheduled railroading, it becomes like precision scheduled for who? It's uh, it's to 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 misquote Voltaire, neither precision nor scheduled nor railroading. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah absolutely. It, because these guys are talking about, they're like, all right, so I had this shift where I drove this train from you know wherever to wherever. I was I was on the train for twelve hours, and we got there, and I was then on call for the next thirty four hours, and I got like four hours of sleep and was called on to another train. And yeah, I'm just like, I don't understand like how these guys, I guess it's a lot of monster energy drinks. Yeah. I yeah. mean like and, any, any common sense understanding of precision scheduled railroading would involve <laughs> the, the ability to give these precise schedules to the workers fairly well in advance. Like you right. would think as yes. soon as you had started to imagine it's time to start loading cars, you should be able to give them, you know, 10 hours notice if it's going to take 10 hours to put 250 cars on a train. Yeah. And, and these monster trains, they cause a lot of problems for like just getting stuff to places on time. You know, if you mm -hmm. have like an older, older railroad, maybe it's a single track railroad with passing sidings, right? The passing sidings are like a hundred cars long. You got a 250 car train. You, you you can't use any of those passing sidings. Um, what is a oh, passing right. siding? So if there's a train going one way and a train going the other way on a single track line, uh, one of them pulls over into the siding and lets the other one pass. Mm. Uh, but if there if the if the train is too long, can't do that. You just have to have the train hold in the yard or wherever there's a stretch of double track, uh, and 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 just wait for the other guy to come. And this can mean, you know, crews are being uh, brought on at one in the morning to just sit there. <laughs> right. And of course, I guess in keeping with so much of the uh, what you've also been telling us about the history of what the railroads choose to invest in and what they don't, you would think, oh, if they decide, well, we really like running these super long trains and we want that to be our long term thing. So perhaps we should build longer sidings that would actually accommodate this, but I'm guessing that's not something they've actually done. Uh, no, I, I mean, they've tried to scam it off the public before. Uh, that's, <laughs> mm. that's, that's something that both Norfolk Southern and CSX are trying as part of, of like, uh, uh, Amtrak's passenger service improvements. They're like, well, uh, gee, uh, looks like you got to build us a couple 250-car passing sightings. Huh? That'll be... <laughs> Uh, that'll be $351 million, please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple uh, of bucks between friends. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, and there's other problems with these monster trains. Like, it, does anyone remember uh, earlier this year, I think it was this year, there was that video of people robbing the train in Los Angeles, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, that made the rounds everywhere about the organized gangs of thieves robbing the train. <laughs> yes, uh, look how bad crime is in Los right. Angeles. How have we fallen this far as a nation? No, right. that's because that's a monster train that doesn't fit in the yard. <laughs> mm. 
What a surprise. Yeah, yeah. It it was not as characterized by the mainstream media. (laughs) So so not not only are are these relatively small, like, side areas on the tracks for them to pull off, not large enough to accommodate the trains, but literally entire yards that would have to be, that I imagine would be even more expensive to expand, say they're in a, a very expensive urban environment like L.A., Um, so it's just like, it's not only that they're not willing to invest in some of this stuff. It seems like they've kind of backed themselves into a corner where they would be functionally unable to in some situations as well. Absolutely. And uh, who it's really bad for as well is M-Track because Mm. the M-Track train fits in the passing siding, but the freight train doesn't. That means it becomes impossible from an infrastructure standpoint to route an M-Track train ahead of a freight train. It's, you mm. can't do it. It's not even like, even if you have a dispatcher who wants to, you physically cannot do it. Uh, right. Yeah, so, so re- reducing like, the ability to actually coordinate the logistics, yeah. uh, like, in a way that actually is, again, precise, scheduled, or even railroading. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, uh, it's a whole bunch of trains that are just stopped waiting for other trains to move. Um, <laughs> what a brilliant system. <laughs> uh, now, now... Uh, not to not to be uh, too, um, you know, uh, the other thing here is, of course, the railroads are trying to fix this with beep boop computers, right? Right. Um, <laughs> uh, they've now invented several fuel economy focused uh, driver assist systems for trains, right? Um, and this is sort of like there's, there's one called trip optimizer. You have someone program in the route beforehand. But then uh, there's one called leader, which actually runs on machine learning. Ooh, um, yeah, fancy. yeah, this is, uh, I'm sure and, that works and, every time. Oh my yeah, God. I, I, have, <laughs> I have a machine learning advanced AI algorithm GPS system that helps me navigate a fixed track on the ground. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and the, the, these, uh, these systems, they tend to run trains very slowly, but if you're sure. a locomotive engineer, a lot of times you're, you're required to use them for reasons mm. of fuel economy. But the other thing is they make boneheaded decisions literally all the time. Um, and you have a situation where it's like, okay, do I disable the driver assist and maybe get disciplined for it, or do I let it derail the train and possibly <laughs> die? But they'll consider it a mechanical failure. You know, it's right. it, it's a decision you have to be making. Um, and of course, ev- everyone's surveilled all the time in the train cab now, and it's not like you can, you know, be on your phone or anything or read mm-hmm. a newspaper. Even when you're stopped at a red signal and tied down, you're just constantly surveilled. Um, yeah, and I, I think I was reading that they're not even, like, allowed to have a cell phone on them. Uh, I think you have to stick in it in a cases. locker on the locomotive. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah they, it, they, it was in that, uh, that statement that you read from the uh, the worker at the beginning of that of the episode a couple episodes ago where they were talking about their wife who yeah, uh, was yeah, in the he, hospital. Yeah, he was talking about, like, how he was he was driving a train while his wife was... was I guess, terminally ill in the hospital and was just like, uh, I can't have my phone on me. So I may get to the end of my shift and find out I've missed like the opportunity to go be with her. And thankfully that didn't end up happening, but I'm sure it has to to plenty of people. If you're just completely out of contact with the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. Now, one thing you do have while you're dealing with, uh, Tesla full self-driving beta 
driving your train for you. Um, uh, the other thing about that leader system is that they're actually, it, it, the machine learning was, it was trained on, I believe, is all simulators. It's not actually real world conditions because they well, don't run enough trains to get you enough time. It's like, oh, we forced a bot to play 9,000 hours of Microsoft train simulator. Let's, <laughs> let, let's see how it does on the real Marias Pass. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess my question yeah. would be, if we're comparing it to Tesla's driving system, has... Have these like machine learning systems managed to decapitate any of their own drivers yet? Uh, probably. Um, <laughs> okay, so you have to, you have to, you know, we're in, we're, we're, there's such a derailment epidemic right now that none of it mm -hmm. makes the news. Um, I mean, uh, Norfolk Southern put like 20 coal cars on the ground on the Northeast Corridor. That's a 150 mile an hour railroad, and Whew. it barely, barely wow. made the news. If there had been an Amtrak train there right then, holy crap. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when and you say like, it's, a, it's a derailment pandemic, you're not kidding, because when I looked up information about the derailment that I saw when I was living in Pittsburgh, I found out that one had just happened recently, uh, May 29th in this year, and it's just like... Uh, are these aren't supposed to be happening in major cities routinely? <laughs> well, I, the fact that they're not showing up in in any sort of like media. I mean, I don't know if I've even. I mean, John, you're talking about a derailment that you that you had to literally see to be in, like inclined to look it up. I've never seen news on a train derailment. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and, and not all of them are huge ones. Like minor ones are pretty constant. I mean, I was a couple years ago. I was riding my bike along the Schuylkill River Trail. And you just saw CSX derail a train, like right next <laughs> wow. to me, and I was like, I was like, wow, that shouldn't be like that, huh? Uh, didn't, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Didn't make the news. Uh, no one noticed it. I took a picture and posted it on Twitter, and that was like the extent of the news reporting on it. Um, <laughs> wow. And it was like it was an wow. empty lumber car, but like right next to it was a bunch of cars full of molten sulfur. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, because I mean, that's one of the things with. Like the combination of making these trains so gigantic, so long, and again, as you said, like often hauling like potentially dangerous substances. I mean, even a coal, like that's yeah. I don't I don't have coal dumped all over my house. Exactly. But like you have that at the same time that they're like, what if we just only put one person? Yeah. Now you don't even have train. a guy. Now you don't even have a guy to keep you company when you're sitting there at the red signal for six hours. Um, right. Or, <laughs> or even just like, what if, what if the train gut person has a heart attack or they get stung by a bee and it yeah. turns out they're allergic and they didn't know, like there's so many or things been awake for 26 yeah. hours. Yeah. And, that's you the, know, that's the real dangerous off. one. Cause if you're, if you're on a freight train, you do have to push a button called the alerter every 30 seconds or it automatically applies the brakes that's you know the dead mm. man's handle um and mm. sort of prevents you if you die the train stops um right. the thing is it's also very easy to space out and hit it automatically over and over again mm, um right you know and that that is that is an issue which does occur um and you know these these with with, with one man train operation there's no one no one there for a, a sanity check i mean if you look at the case of uh of uh, the Amtrak derailment in Philly in 2013, uh, that engineer, uh, Brandon Boston, he was very, very safety conscious. He was uh, definitely someone who loved his job and he just spaced out for a second and ran the train off a curve because he missed where he, he just misplaced where he was for a second. Um, yeah. and there was no sort of safety equipment on that track to prevent him uh, from overspeeding there. Now, there was on the adjacent track, but uh, uh, Amtrak mm. just uh, 
didn't decide to put it on that track. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So this yeah, is crazy. Uh, this is the state of the industry. You have all these trains being driven by machine learning systems with also guys in there who are overworked, they're stressed, they're sleepy. Um, you know, you have uh, uh, badly run uh, freight trains, which, you know, they're too long. Um, you know, they don't fit in yards. Everything's broken. Everything is so broken. And all in the name of precision scheduling, which it, it, it notably does not happen. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, like, this is the setting. This is the background that we're coming into, like, as the negotiations were continuing at the beginning of this year. Like, And I, I think, like, spring is kind of a big point here because that's when, like, BNSF, one of the biggest Class 1 railways in the country, implemented their new draconian uh, attendance system. Because yes. so, like... In addition to the fact that these guys are already on call all the time, they have to work ridiculous hours, they're always away from home. Like now, you can get fired working for BNSF basically for taking any time off at all. Like, because they set up this lifetime point system where basically, if you get COVID, just as the example, because it's, you know, something that could very well happen and you're out for even just the five-day insufficient CDC guidance, that if that can rack up basically all of your lifetime points. And, and if you had to take one or two more days off because you're still sick, you're still testing positive, you could just be fired because you got COVID, not because like you played hooky for two weeks or something. Yeah. It's just because they don't have any sick days and because this system of so-called precision scheduled railroading has been built on the backs of leaning out the, the crews so much that they're basically making these people all work two, three, four people's jobs mm -hmm. that like, if you have these people out, it's it screws up their system. So their solution would rather than, you know, to look at it and say, Hmm, well, if we're having to run people like, 355 days of the 365 days in a year uh, in order to make our system work, perhaps we should hire a couple more people. No, and there's, there's, they just double down on it, implement these incredibly draconian attendance systems uh, that like, I, I mean, there was a quote that when we first talked about this a couple of months ago, like uh, the national president uh, of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, Dennis Pierce, put out a statement say, calling it the, quote, the worst and most egregious attendance policy ever adopted by any rail carrier. That sounds about right to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, even, even back in the, in the bad old days of, you know, steam locomotives and stuff, uh, you had days off. Um. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, just as a, like a, a random, I, I mean, like anecdote, like my uncle actually used to like when he was a kid, well, not a kid, I guess when he was like in his early twenties, uh, during the summer, he did a, a short stint where he worked on this, like, this line that was in the middle of nowhere. It ran from, like, central Maine to Montreal. Um, I don't remember the name of the railroad, but he was talking about how, like... It would probably be the Grand Trunk Railroad. Yeah, I think that that was what it yeah. was. And he was talking about where, like, a guy that he was on his tr train crew, and this so this would have been, like, I don't know, 50 years ago, mm -hmm. Um where one of the guys that he was working with on the train, like really hurt himself. And because their, their train was just in the middle of the woods, they just like 
stopped the train at the first road they came to and had to flag down a car because there was no way for them to communicate with anybody. And, and frankly, this was 50 years ago. It doesn't sound like that situation is actually improved well, for these workers. You do at least have radios now. There is that. That's um, true. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable how you've really gone backwards, I would say. Uh, overall, in terms of quality of life for workers, um, I mean, this is this is a secondhand anecdote. Uh, but I know a guy who knew a guy who was uh, he, he worked for Union Pacific and he was like senior high ranking engineer. He was selected for the Union Pacific steam program. Right. Union Pacific runs a bunch of steam trains around the country as like a public relation thing. And of course, mm. it's Union Pacific. So you get to drive the biggest steam locomotive. Uh, sure. Just call, really it's cool. just called the big boy. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah. so, you know, you get, you get this great job. You get to drive the steam locomotive. You get to wave the kids. You get to blow the whistle. You know, it's a prestige position, right? And, sure. But the thing is, the regular job was so bad that I guess he's a personal trainer at a gym now. He just quit. And I was like, wow. damn, you got mm-hmm. like the dream, the dream kid's job. You get to drive the steam train. And it's like, it's too bad. It's the... The quality of life yeah. is just so bad that you can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've seen like in the numbers that like 700 workers at BNSF have quit just in those six months since they implemented that policy, which is, again, largely due to the restrictions of the Railway Labor Act, because in so many other industries that are unionized like this, when you the, a company puts in a policy like that, you would have a strike. Yes. But mm-hmm. which is of course what the Brotherhood of Locomotive and, Engin- uh, and Engineers and Trainmen wanted to do as as well as uh, Smart Transportation Division, the other big rail uh, rail union, but they were immediately blocked by an injunction from a federal judge who's like, "No, no, you haven't gone through all the steps yet. You have to go through the whole flow chart. You can't skip it just because they're putting you on a schedule no human being can possibly do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and this whole time, it, it these companies have been able to use the uh, railway labor act to uh, basically just chase profits. Like it's not like they have a dwindling supply of incoming money that they yeah. have to like try and work around by implementing all of these insane intensifications of labor. For example, BNSF made five point one billion dollars in net income in twenty twenty and was on track to make 17% more in pure profit just by the third fiscal quarter of 2021, which is like, you know, we talk a lot on the show about how when companies uh, act like this, they always do actually have the money to pay their employees more. But it seems like in railways, it's really kind of in a different order of magnitude. Like it's on a different level of exploitation. Uh, I would say one one of the things I think the railroads are kind of worried about at this point is I think they are expecting some massive drop off in traffic pretty soon because Mm. coal is, uh, coal is dying. Uh, crude oil by rail is not, not as big of a thing anymore. Those were big cash cows for them. Uh, but the other thing is, of course, they, they really have to chase these profits because, you know, who are they competing with for investment dollars? It's like a guy in a basement who made an app that makes a fart sound. It cost them a (laughs) dollar, it cost him a dollar to do, and he made $2 billion in a week. Uh, that's a much, that's a much, much better return on investment than, uh, the rather awkward position railroads are in of actually having to do things. Uh. <laughs> right. So I think, I mean, that I think, you know, points to why their strategy yeah. has been to, I mean, more or less like loot the entire railway system at the expense of their workers. Like, because I mean, just 
there's one further thing to underline the fact that it's like it's not as if the like despite the decrepit nature of some of the the railway infrastructure it's not as if they're not making money because like in addition to that number just for bnsf i found one to a stat today that was just wild that over the last 12 years rail all the class one railroads have paid out 196 billion dollars in dividends and stock buybacks to their shareholders They've been they've been really going hard on those stock buybacks over the past like ten years. Though, yeah, um, and it's kind of like, what, what's the purpose of this? I, I what, right. what, what if you what if you invested one hundred ninety six billion dollars in rail infrastructure, for instance? I mean, yeah. you just invested half of it. Yeah, I was about <laughs> to say. I was about to say this is this is a good chunk of change. Um, you know, you you could probably you, you, I don't know you could you, you could build like a dead straight line from like New York to Chicago and run trains at two hundred miles an hour for that amount of money. But instead, it's like I we purchased our stock back, so some guy <laughs> right some guy made six dollars. Um, yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, maybe you could even stop asking the public to cover your costs to make longer segments of rail so that trains can pass each other. <laughs> yes, yes, um, yeah, I. I mean, it's, uh, it's, the industry's really fucked up right now. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's always been yeah. fucked up in some way, but right now is a particularly stupid way to be fucked up. <laughs> well, and with that, I mean, it, do we want to move to like what has been happening over just like the past little bit with like the P, the presidential emergency board or anything like that? Do we want to like directly move to what the impending strike slash lockout situation is? Yeah, was yes. there any other like background history you wanted to go over that we haven't hit yet? Uh, uh, I think I'm I think I'm exhausted on that for the moment. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. All right, so yeah, like for folks who uh, again, if you're if you're m- a bit more new to this or if it's the first time hearing about this topic, uh, you may not be aware that one of the last stops on that flow chart in the National Railway Labor Act is these this concept of the Presidential Emergency Board, where which is supposed to be like. The pep- yeah, the, the PEB <laughs> is supposed to be the last, like, safety valve where, all right, you we've made you sit through 20 fucking mediation sessions and you still can't agree, which really means that the, the companies are still stonewalling. So the president is going to establish a special board that will look at what the, the workers are saying and what the companies are saying and will come up with a fair compromise, which Air in practice quotes. just means like represent, like saying that whatever the companies are saying is fine. It, so like it, it being called the PEB makes me imagine it's just overseen by like a Joe Biden Pez dispenser. <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> probably. I mean, yeah. they, they picked three people to basically put together this this committee that, like Dan was saying, listens to the corporation and then pretends to listen to the workers. And uh, and like this time, what they've done is they've come out with an agreement that exclusively partially addresses the wage issue and nothing else basically so over yes. the next yeah. five-year contract which is actually retroactive to 2020 because they've been running on the older contract they've been forced to run on the older contract over the period of the pandemic up till now and uh that that raise is by the peb is recommended to be 24 percent where the workers themselves had demanded 28 percent uh and and then also all of the demands for like we were talking about earlier the the um the new attendance policy have mm-hmm. no no changes within this peb recommendation and uh so now we've had there's 
I can't remember how many unions it is. I think it's like 10, eight or eight or 12 different unions that are associated with all of these different train lines. And a lot of them have been kind of strong armed into uh, agreeing to a tentative agreement where, as you know, listeners to the show will know, there's a bargaining committee and they would bring uh, when having these negotiations, they'll have a. Uh, tentative agreement, which then is proposed to the workers. And those votes are going to be happening later this week, if not like tomorrow and the next day. I mean, I guess we're recording this on the 13th. Uh, I know that some of the votes are happening on Thursday, uh, but the the only two holdouts are the smart transportation. We, we've been talking about the smart transportation wing and then also the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers yeah, who are with the Teamsters. And the, those are the two that have not come to a tentative agreement yet, which a lot of the, if you read any of the, the reports from any of the capitalist sources, they're like, can you believe that these unions are just <laughs> sticking the muds? They're not, you know, coming to the table or they, as if like coming to the table means just giving in to the president's recommend, the president's board of recommendations. They can't come to the table because they're on call. They might, yeah. get away. Yeah. they might get called away yeah. to run a train. No, exactly. <laughs> can, can you believe I'm, that these holdout unions didn't appreciate it when Joe Biden's PEB dispenser showed up and said, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you most of the wage increase you want, but I can't shake a broomstick at no attendance policy. And then a bar of soap shot out of his <laughs> neck and hit you in the face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the thing is that like they're framing it as, as if the, the, cause the two unions, the, the, the BLET and smart TD, which are the two biggest unions in the rails, uh, as like these crank holdouts. When really, when if you like actually go and like look on like rail Twitter, which has been a very interesting place to to find myself in over yes. the last <laughs> couple of months, and actually a lot of really militant voices in there, which I've really appreciated. Um, the the people in there are like that are in those other unions are like this is bullshit. We didn't want to agree to this tentative agreement. And and it's like, like, you know, it's like, okay, these two crank holdout unions happen to be the unions of the people who actually drive the trains. Right, <laughs> right. Exactly. They are the ones affected by all this. And the, the, the thing that they are refusing to accept is that they should continue to have these horrific attendance policies that are the very thing driving so many of their own members out of the industry. Yes. Like the, the, the PEB literally wouldn't even recommend them to have three paid holidays. Three in the whole year. They're like, well, what if we gave you one personal day yeah. for the entire year? That's the same as three holidays and sick days. And because I think one of the other things that folks may not realize when we're talking about like the workers only having one day off a month and having no sick days, that's not in addition to weekends because they don't have weekends. Like that's nope. not a thing for these guys. Like it's literally one day off a month, 12 days off a year for a lot of these folks. Like it, it is an attendance policy that the, I think the vast majority of people you'd see, Oh, these guys make, well, maybe $95,000 a year. That seems like a great salary. It's like, do you want to work 353 days out of the year and never see your family? Right. <laughs> ever? And yeah. And we've also been talking about how dangerous these monster trains are and mm -hmm. the and the dangers of having like a, a one man crew. Well, the PEB also didn't say shit about that. They they are yeah. just like, uh, well, I mean, if that's what the companies want, then I guess we're just going to, you know, 
turn a blind eye to this this really horrible practice that's going to lead to even more derailments than the current derailment pandemic or uh, epidemic that we're seeing. Yeah, maybe one of yeah. the only industries that is like more dangerous than healthcare to have unsafe staffing yeah. levels. Hey, I mean, uh, right here in Philly, um, CSX or excuse me, Conrail has a line that runs straight through children's hospital and they run dangerous chemicals through it uh, every day. So, you know, it's uh, <laughs> incredible. We, we can combine these two. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And of course, what, what, what we want as citizens of the United States is for those folks to have uh, no weekends and yeah. be operating on like two hours of sleep over the last three days yeah. and, and fueled entirely by six cans of like zero sugar monster energy drink. Yes. Right. Um, and, and I mean, like I was talking about the, the wage increase that was, you know, under what the workers were demanding, uh, especially in the face of inflation. But additionally, mm -hmm. the board recommended raising the healthcare costs, which directly yeah. cuts in to the amount that the raise that they were proposing would even benefit the workers. Yeah, I mean, every, everything the PEP has recommended is basically like one step forward, two and a half steps back. Like it's that yeah. line yeah. from the, the like the movie they were watching. You know, you got to find a way to give them one dollar while you take two. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, the the Biden administration is is, is very good at that. <laughs> um, and yeah, so of course, like that's basically where the presidential emergency board came out. They're like, hey, look, we, you know, we hear you. You don't like what the company's offering. So we'll give you a tiny amount more money. And we'll also take that away by raising your health care costs. And then, oh, you have other issues. We'll just go back to the bargaining table. You'll figure them out again after it's been years of the company's intransigence refusing to listen. Because again, this whole situation, the, the way the Railway Labor Act is set up, doesn't give the companies any incentive because they can just do exactly what they're doing now. They can use the press and their ability to control, you know, their own company to say like, well, look, if there's a railway strike, you think you got a bad inflation problem now that, I mean, look how bad it's going to be. If our rails are shut down because of a strike Congress, you better get in there and, and make sure there's no strike. Cause Oh boy, it would sure would be a, a problem if inflation got worse because of a strike right before the election. Well, I, I like they're trying to fear monger about inflation rather than empty shelves. Uh, you know, yeah. a, a literal a, a a literal food shortage hits America. You know, I mean. Yeah. yeah well, sure. and the number that that Capital's been touting about like what this strike or even the lockout would would constitute is two billion dollars a day in in basically I think that's a, a pretty things not moving. That's an underestimate. I, yeah. I imagine because there's so many other aspects of the ch of the supply chain that will be affected by you know the the problems that will inevitably come from these companies these private companies uh deciding that the workers don't mean shit and the safety of this rail infrastructure doesn't mean shit and uh obviously it's the only thing that matters is the the profits of them and their their uh investors yeah but americans don't understand knock-on effects or consequences all they yeah. know is lower wages raise inflation labor intensification yeah. eat hot chip and lie, lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly Exactly. I, maybe, maybe the uh, maybe the food riots might force someone's hand. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, and I think honestly, I think that's a big part of why the railway companies are trying so hard right now this week, like as we speak, to try and force Congress to prevent a strike. Yeah. Because like 
while the impacts of the strike would be enormous and a lot of people would get annoyed by it, I think it, I mean, annoyed, I'm sure is an understatement, Mm -hmm. but like, um, I think it would pretty rapidly become clear as, as different, as much as the media would try not to make it clear, um, that like the problem is the railroads. It's not the workers. Yes. It's, it's, um, you know, they're, they're trying to eke out the last of their profits they can out of this incredibly unsustainable and stupid business model. And, um, you know, if they, if they take out American democracy with it, so be it. <laughs> yeah, they were trying. Yeah, to, they're mean, trying to get rid of any level of democracy that exists yeah. anyway. I mean, like, yeah. not that it even really exists well, no, here. Not that it exists in the first place. Obviously, yeah. I was just. That. But yeah, so I mean, I guess we've kind of been been leading up to this point. But so, like, again, for folks who haven't been 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 following all the details of the this process. After the issuing of the Presidential Emergency Board uh, recommendations, there's a one final 30-day uh, cooling-off period which it, in which the workers cannot strike, and theoretically the rail companies can't lock them out, although they're already making moves in that direction mm-hmm. uh, in a way that seems illegal, but, you know, the, the div- one set of laws for them, one set of laws for us. This is true. Uh, and... And so that's w- really why we wanted to do this this episode so urgently because that the end of that cooling off period is this Friday, September sixteenth. Yes. And so if Congress doesn't pass some sort of preemptive bill, then and and there isn't a tentative agreement reached, which is of course also possible. Um, although that would really seem to be a, a big retreat, and I'm pretty sure it would only accelerate the rate of quits in in so many of these uh, different railroads. And, but like, so we could see this start as soon as this Friday. So this is like, I mean, and this is, you're looking at, I believe about 60,000 workers in between like BLET and smart TD, but really you're talking about more than a hundred thousand workers because you're talking about the whole rail system. Cause if you don't have locomotive engineers, you're not, send in trains anywhere even yeah. if the other and this is yeah, this is uh this is shutting down parts of m-track this is shutting down commuter yeah. rail in some cities mm-hmm. this is going to shut down um it's it's gonna it's gonna shut down like a lot of stuff will just stop running uh and you may have a situation where if they do go on strike uh all those freight trains can't fit in the rail yards uh they're just going to leave them mm. parked on the main line and you know you, you have this monster train that's three and a half miles long blocking like 45 grade crossings um yeah, Every, everyone's yeah. gonna feel something from this if it happens, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's not even—I uh, mean—that's not even taking into account the fact that there are all of those unions that did come to the tentative agreement, but still have to bring the vote to the membership. Which, as we've kind of been hearing from a lot of the workers there, are not very likely to accept these tentative agreements. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the yeah. two engineers' unions holding out, uh, I think, has really put a, sh- shown a lot of light on the situation in a way that maybe some of the union members from the other unions hadn't had access to before. And it's definitely notable since BLET is traditionally a very conservative uh, craft union, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're leading the way on this one. Um, And this is, this is a, uh, I, I mean, if they mean business, they mean business, you know? Um, (laughs) Well, and that's one of the things that, because one of the things that we've talked about when we were getting into this and the history is, because obviously I think one of the comparisons with when we get into, you know, Congress potentially intervening, declaring a strike illegal is you always have that specter of something like PATCO where mm-hmm. like 
if even if you have like a, a union that's got a militant leadership and and is just like fuck this, we are not accepting a tentative agreement that doesn't at least give our our guys a couple of sick days and a couple days off a year. Uh, like even if you get into that situation, you have of course the threat that the Congress just declares a strike illegal and tries to destroy the union. Now, I think realistically, they're not I, like, I don't really think the national guard is particularly capable of operating the entire national freight system. <laughs> well, well, there is a, there is a U.S. army railroad and it probably has like 400 guys tops. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, you that's know, the thing. And, it's and like, I, I wouldn't put it past Congress or the president or ever to just be like, you know what? Fuck it. Derail them all. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Try to get them most of the way there first. <laughs> Yeah, and and so one of the things that I'm really hoping that we do see, if it does come to that, if it does come to a strike, or, and really, actually, because we haven't really gotten into this, I mean, because of the way the carriers have been so aggressive about this, it actually looks like if we do get to Friday without an agreement, it's actually more likely that we're going to see a lockout before we see a strike. Mm. Uh, yes, this, so, is, this is an option, which uh, may occur, yeah, yeah. And, and that's going to be, well, I think the, the railroads would lose the PR campaign on that, the only... The only issue there being, I don't think the railroads care about PR. I mean, it's right. it's kind of a it's kind of they they are they are got the uh, power. Uh, they ha- yeah they have this sort of institutional capability to withstand criticism, which is second only to like the Catholic Church, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so like if it does come to that, if there is a lockout or if there is a strike, this is one of these areas where I think to take some of the lessons of Patco and just be like, what was one of the things that allowed Reagan to destroy the air traffic controllers union? And it's the fact that like the rest of labor kind of just hung, let, let them hang in there to dry. Um, Whereas with this, I would be at least hopeful since the BLET is affiliated with the teamsters Mm -hmm. that if this happens and if Congress tries to break the strike, that there would be some sort of solidarity between at least the union truckers, uh, which of course is nowhere near what it used to be uh, national penetration wise since the deregulation in the eighties and the death of the, you know, national master freight agreement. Um, But because that's one of those things where if you have like, because the Biden administration right now is in preparation. We just saw this news that came out today in preparation for, if there is a strike, they're trying to source like, okay, well, uh, we need chlorine to like treat water supplies. And we normally move that by train. If there's a strike, where do we get it? And how do we move it around the country? Mm -hmm. Uh, And what you do is you crash it on an urban freeway. Um, (laughs) Right. uh, That's going to, that's going to look pretty bad for everyone involved. Um, (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, there's like this potential, there's this need for like labor solidarity that I'm really hoping that if we do have a strike that we see because it there's going to be that temptation to not only just use the full force of the state to crush the strike but also, you know, try and route as much stuff as possible around the rails through more trucks although again with the like supply chains being pushed to the max already i'm not even sure there's capacity for them to absorb even a percentage of that there is absolutely no spare capacity in the trucking system to take on all that freight um yeah yeah well and and i mean also like the teamsters represent a lot of people who work for last mile delivery companies as well so Mm -hmm. it's like a lot of the goods that are on those trains or trucks or whatever it may be uh if if you have that level of support from the teamsters might not have any way to make it to people's doorsteps at the end of the route anyway yeah 
and I'm like not even saying that you need to do like a national trucking strike or something sure. at the same time, but just making it clear that it's like our drivers stand in solidarity with, you know, the train workers and the train workers need everything that they're asking for because they're, again, their demands are not like pay us a million dollars a year and give us six months off. It's literally like allow us to go to the doctor without being fired. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it does seem possible, I think because of the way that the, some of the teamsters contracts are set up to not have, not force them to cross picket lines. Although, right. I mean, uh, that's, I don't think that's, that's in every single contract, but it is in some of the contracts. Well, and it'll put them into yeah. an interesting situation if those picket lines are deemed illegal and then they're going to have to make some pretty interesting decisions uh, around that time. So Right. And so, like, you've got, I mean, Norfolk Southern, I don't know if they actually did this. We were talking about this before the show. Like, they announced today that they were, as of noon, this is uh, Tuesday the 13th, um, that they were going to just be shutting down their whole intermodal freight network yes i believe i believe they delayed that by 24 hours as of like a couple hours ago but um okay. that is that is happening most likely i mean uh, amtrak's already canceling long distance trains which aren't going to make it to the terminal by the time the strike is scheduled to occur mm -hmm. um you know the whole uh the, the system is already starting to shut down. Um, so I, I think everyone expects something to happen. Um, maybe even if Congress decides, nah, fuck them, take the contract. Um, yeah. You know, this, 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 this problem, if it's not addressed, it's just going to continue to fester, you know? Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I really liked that, honestly, because like in response to the railroads actions, basically doing a gearing up for a preemptive lockout, uh, like the BLET and smart TD issued a statement in which they said the railroads are using shippers, consumers, and the supply chain of our nation as pawns in an effort to get our unions to cave into their contract demands, knowing that our members would never accept them. Our unions will not cave to these scare tactics and Congress must not cave into what can only be described as corporate terrorism. Yes. That's a good phrase right there. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, I mean, as you were saying, like, uh, I, I mean, I don't know as much of the history specifically of, you know, the rail union. So, like, but obviously, even just with, that's the only, like, I hearing the phrase corporate terrorism, <laughs> I'm like, I would expect to hear that maybe from UE, <laughs> maybe from the ILWU, yeah. not even from a Teamsters Associated Union. Well, I mean, except for, I mean, Sean O'Brien does say, you know, That's true. some stuff like that. I mean, uh, these uh, white collar criminals or whatever he calls them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. well, to be, yeah, to be fair, the Teamsters have been getting a lot better very quickly ever since Sean O'Brien came around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, this is all happening in the because because Congress is so directly involved in this with the Railway Labor Act, this un this gets tied in with all of the political situation in the country. Obviously, with the midterm elections coming up in barely two months at this point, that's, of course, at the top of the concern for all of the Democrats who are in power. I so, always forget that that's a thing. Like, I mean, like, I don't, yeah, I, we I don't, don't care give a about fuck them. about the Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, and so I was. The fact that they're like, oh, no, we can't let this impact weight, uh, prices too much. 
otherwise, Bi- Biden's selected, you know, or the Democrats, you know, Congress, whatever. I don't know who the fuck's being reelected. Uh, but, but you know, they're, that's what the, the thing the, that they're concerned you know, about primarily. Yeah. Oh, right. what, what will the Senate parliamentarians say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like the whole thing is it just like, oh, well, we did our loan forgiveness thing and that was supposed to keep a, like, that was supposed to be the tiny bone that we threw people to have us keep Congress. We can't have that be screwed up by workers fighting for their right to not have to work every day of the year. So I mean, like there was a, there was a statement in, there was a article in railway age that was just talking about like these, these updating things where, uh, I guess labor, labor secretary, Marty Walsh was telling people that saying, according to the, the article said that he basically said, don't mess with the nation's fragile economy weeks ahead of a midterm congressional elections as neither Congress nor the Biden administration will like it. But then he said that Congress should not be expected to intervene to stop a strike or a like it lockout which is also contradicted by, I think, just yesterday, yeah. Steny Hoyer, who is the uh, House Majority Leader, came out and said that Congress would intervene. So we're getting a lot of really mixed messages from the Democrats on this. Uh, additionally, I mean, even if they do try to shut down a strike or a lockout, I mean, that's just going to exacerbate these bad working conditions. And instead of of seeing this sort of infrastructure, you know, put on hold, what we're going to see is far more of that just more derailing or because there's going to be so many workers that just leave because nobody wants to deal with all of yeah. that bullshit. And mm-hmm. I'm genuinely uh, surprised at how narrow the framing has been on this one. Just that like, um, you know, uh, it, it's like railroads are almost irrelevant to the economy or like <laughs> I, I, if you want to be a lib about it, uh, national security, for instance, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, right. you I know, was going to say, like, <laughs> don't don't mess with the nation's fragile economy weeks ahead of midterm congressional elections is the most words I've ever heard used to say national security. <laughs> yeah, I was about, well, I mean, it's even directly like I, the military ships all its tanks around on trains. You oh, know, okay, this, yeah, this is all yeah. kind of like uh, uh, all. All, all this stuff is uh, uh, it, it, it's more important than people are, are, are being led to believe, I think. And this is uh, I, I don't know. I mean, just starting from the railroads, incredibly unsustainable business model right now. Um, they they got to do you would you basically have to give in to the union's demands if you want to still have railroads in like five years. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Because because that's the thing. It's like they're they're living in this. I, and it's funny because I think like you're you're absolutely right to point out that like because of the fact that the media never talks about this part of like because it, it, we use the term supply chain and then they never explain what a supply chain is. Yes. And so I think people have this idea of like, well, it's just trucks. Everything is trucks. And like it stuff comes from China on a boat and it comes to California and it goes to the warehouses at Inland Empire. And then they all get on trucks and that goes everywhere around the country. And that's how everything moves. Yeah. It's like. Well, that's a percentage of it, but that's not everything. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh, okay, I, I, you know, maybe I get my, you know, high value goods. A lot of them still go for with trucks because the railroads completely ceded that traffic in the '80s to the trucking industry. Mm. But uh, okay, what happens if the grain doesn't make it to the flour mill? What happens if right. the coal doesn't make it to the power plant? What happens if um, you know all all this kind of stuff? Uh, the gasoline doesn't make it to the fuel distributor. You know, all all this sort of the the basic level of the economy, you know, the actual like 
the, the large quantity commodities, these are all running, going by train. And if that supply chain is interrupted, uh, you know, it's still going to be really easy to get an iPhone, but really hard to get a loaf of bread, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> sure. that's well, one of yeah. the things that the unions were saying, because uh, I was listening to the working people's interview with the, the uh, train union leaders, and uh, <laughs> they were saying that what this will lead to is grain rotting in silos, Yes. And, mm-hmm. and on top of the fact that food prices are are already skyrocketing, there's going to be no like even less food, which is going to raise prices even more. I mean, they're going to be seeing inflation like that of the UK. Yeah, well, and yeah. it's really interesting, too. I mean, like how different the view from the union side is from the company side on this, where the unions are like, uh, we would like this industry that supports all other industry in the country to probably continue and be healthy. Meanwhile, like the people at the top of the companies basically like have financialization VR headsets on and can't see a, a fucking damn material thing that's happening at the bottom or even the middle levels of their companies. Those guys have really been sniffing their own farts for a long time. That's all I can say about that. (laughs) Yeah, because they're sitting there at their Bloomberg terminals lighting cigars with $100 bills and being like, well, all I see is this line's going up, so I know we're doing the right thing. So I don't know what those pesky workers are saying, but it sounds like a bunch of nonsense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I do, there is one thing, like before we wrap up, that I did want to underline about Congress's ability to intervene here. And This is not a scenario I actually think is very likely. (laughs) Um, Certainly don't want to put any faith whatsoever in Congress at all. But one of the things with the Congress's ability to intervene is that while, like, for instance, like the GOP put in a, a bill, a proposed bill that would just do what we're kind of expecting to happen, which is Congress f- making any strike illegal and forcing the recommendations of the, the presidential emergency board onto all of the unions, saying you must accept this as your contract, not doing so is illegal. And if you try and strike, we will, you know, get fined, all, like take all your money and throw your leaders in jail and, and all that stuff. But there is an alternative to that that still stays within the legal system, which is the Democrats who do, you know, at least theoretically control Congress and the presidency um, could tell the rail companies, OK, look, we don't want to strike. We agree with you on that. But you got to give these people sick days like <laughs> they, they don't have to just blindly accept the PEB recommendations. They they're they're Congress. They can write anything into such a bill mm-hmm. like this is true I mean, more or less there's like well, some sort they of they could also technically they could nationalize the fucking train industry well, right. <laughs> yes not that they right. will obviously we, we, they won't we do that we know they're not going to yeah. do that i mean i mean that would be uh i i feel like the only way to compel the changes that need to occur to for us yeah. to have a reliable functioning free rail system at this point is uh absolutely ra- radical change of management just tear down the industry build it back up from its foundations uh i don't think that's going to happen i think we're going to have you know uh we're going to continue to have a dysfunctional self-cannibalizing rail industry for the foreseeable future but um yeah yeah well i mean imagine that like one of the more progressive members of parliament or or of congress did actually try (laughs) and propose like meaningful legislation to address this issue the democrats are just going to trot out cinema and mansion again like they always fucking do and it's just going to turn into some kind of circus about these two freaks who have nothing to do with (laughs) railways in any reasonable capacity yes right yeah which is which is actually like that's one of the things it's like 
do I want like a strike that caused like, cause I mean, look, we, we want there to be a strike because we want the workers to have the ability to strike to, for the same reason we want all workers to be able to have the ability to strike as long as, you know, we exist under capitalism mm-hmm. um, that, that it's the only way of workers enforcing their collective power. And if they don't have the right to strike, then they can make all the demands they want. They have no way of enforcing it. But of course, you know, we don't want, the price of bread to go through the fucking roof because that'll just lead to, you know, poor people starving, which we don't want. But if the, the thing that I think is so important about the way that this is being portrayed is that right now it's very easy for the media to ignore the workers because they're not out on a picket line. Yes. Like they, they can just take a quote from the railway industry and talk to whoever in Washington and be like, yep, yep, we talked to the industry experts and we talked to the politicians and we got all of the voices. But if there's <laughs> actually a strike, if there are physically people on picket lines, it becomes much, much harder to just completely ignore what the workers are saying. And it's the sort of thing where their situation is so bad like yeah. the the conditions they're working under are so horrific that you only got to get one or two of them in front of a microphone and it's instantly the most relatable like sympathetic story to the vast vast majority of people in this country Mm -hmm. which is i think why the companies are trying so hard to force either like a a lockout or or a blockage of the strike beforehand because right now the people are like i don't really know anything about the rails i don't understand what's going on but i don't want my prices to go up and this says that'll happen so that sounds like it would be bad but if we actually get you know NBC, CBS, CNN, and any of the you know major news outlets actually interviewing the workers out there on the line, and they tell them, yeah, we literally get one day off a month, we can't be sick, or we get fired, we're on call 40 hours at a time, and that sort of thing. Well, that changes you know, the, the public perception of the whole thing. And I think that's what the companies are trying to avoid. It's remarkable how, um, you know, uh, this is a a relatable story in like several ways. But one thing I I think is notable is, you know, you're you're sort of big, burly, manly man railroader guy is going on strike for basically the same reason as your blue haired, woke Starbucks barista. Um, Uh This is the same problem. Uh, You know, everyone's Mm -hmm. got a lot more in common here. Pink emoji. (laughs) Everyone's got a lot more in common here than I think they're going to try and portray in the media. Um. (laughs) Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah, it's absolutely correct. And that's why, again, I, I think that as awful as this situation is, there is that sort of potential silver lining there where like if you can merge like the current labor upsurge that we're seeing in the service sector with like or at least the level of consciousness being generated by that movement with this you know what when you you know you have all the weird nerds on the internet trying to argue over what is or is not a worker and all that stupid bullshit mm-hmm. and they're like you're only a worker if you're that guy on the the cover of like state and revolution who's not wearing a shirt and is swinging a hammer you gotta, or something. You, gotta, you gotta hit a thing with a hammer or you're not a worker <laughs> yeah you're only right. a worker if you've ever laid slag otherwise yes. <laughs> yeah so getting the the consciousness generated, you know, from the, the sectors, exactly what you're talking about with the, the Starbucks Workers United movement and even, you know, workers organizing in tech, workers organizing at Chipotle, all sorts of different places, and combine that with, like, the same traditional, like, sectors of union movements that we've seen, like, again, with the John Deere in Striketober and, like, now with the rail strike, 
I don't know. I think that's got a potential for like being one of the largest mass consciousness raising events in recent history. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I like, think so. But I mean, yeah, it's we're yeah. I think we've we've gone through pretty much all the history yeah. here, and 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 now it's kind of just we gotta wait and see gotta, at this point, yeah. like what's gonna happen. Yeah. Is there anything else that we wanted to hit before we wrap up? I I was gonna like say uh, maybe a way to uh, put a bow on it was like okay, what what is what is actual like structural reform in the industry look like um, that addresses these issues? And you are it it is based on running trains on schedules. And, you know, if, if you look at workers on railroads in other countries, um, I think our closest peer nations are probably Russia and India in how we run trains. Mm-hmm. They don't have these problems because their trains run on schedules. They can predict mm-hmm. their week. But you need massive structural reform, and you need to get away from the, uh, the disinvestment mindset in order to do that, in order to make that happen in this country. And I don't know if you could pr- convince private industry to do it. I think ultimately... These these railroads are going to have to come under state ownership or stewardship or something in order to prevent you know I I the, the this this slow self destruction that that has been uh, prevalent in the industry for so long. I mean you you actually need public investment in rail to correct this problem and i think a lot of uh a lot of what we're going to get at best is going to be a stopgap that's going to shove this it's going to kick the can down the road a couple years but it's not going to it's not going to solve the underlying issues um so uh in terms of the railroad i I suppose the real solution is full communism now hail satan um That's right. Absolutely. And with that, I think that we can wrap. Uh, Justin, do you want to tell our listeners uh, where they can find you and follow all the work you, you do? Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm Justin. I'm on a podcast called Well, There's Your Problem. It's a podcast about engineering disasters with slides. Um, you can find us on YouTube and on uh, all podcasting platforms because, again, there's a visual component, so you can look at me draw over pictures with a little pen. Um, you know, <laughs> so there's, uh, uh, there's that. Uh, I'm on a Twitter at who underscore shot underscore JGR because those bastards at Twitter took my old account away. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's where I am. Um, well, uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us and helping us get, you know, this information kind of laid out in a little bit clearer fashion, because it is really hard to parse this with basically, you know, capital being the only voice that people are able to, to, to get from most of these situations it's it's crazy i mean even just reading about railroad history you know you you only get capital's viewpoint 99 percent of the Mm -hmm. time all these books are hagiographies um you know and it's uh i i'm I'm glad to be able to at least try to give a more labor focused perspective here or at least something which doesn't you know uh fawn over the railroad like it's a uh, 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 a gift from god you know <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. although i do like the trains um yeah. <laughs> well sure. that's that's a great reason that, to, yeah. to have you on here and uh i want to thank you all for listening and if you want to support our show you can support us at patreon.com slash work stoppage i'll skip all the other plugs for this one uh, i'll just move straight to the classic line labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity everybody solidarity everyone solidarity all when i was a boy in the days of the train 
I'd sit by the tracks on a long summer day And I'd wave to the brakeman and he'd wave back at me While the thunder clouds rolled out of East Tennessee But the dreams of a boy disappear when you're grown And though I may dream The railroads are gone The ties, they are rotted And the track shot to hell Along with my dreams And the old railroad bell In my dreams I'd ride the rails to California Working diners and farms along the way Or I'd hop a ride to hide across the border With a black-eyed girl beside me all the way But now the mountains are silent And the railroads are gone And the coal town's no longer Hear the miners at dawn But the train whistle shrills Out of memories to me While the thunder clouds roll Out of East Tennessee In my dreams I'd ride the rails to California Working diners and farms along the way Hop a ride to hide across the border With a black-eyed girl beside me all the way Now the mountains are silent And the railroads are gone And the coal town's no longer Hear the miners at dawn But the train whistles shrill Out of memories to me While the thunderclouds roll Out of East Tennessee